0: Good evening to you all. I'm so thrilled that the rain stopped because I knew that's a big deal in Los Angeles. Nobody go, everybody goes home and puts their, their head under the covers and stays there until it's out. But you're, you're out for a great night, uh, thrilling. How many of you have never seen zalome Wonderful, that's great. Uh, hasn't been done here in, in, in a while. And by the way... Uh, This uh, is the first Strauss production since I've been here, which is terribly long, and I hope it's not the last. In fact, I hope there's more coming for you, for you uh, Strauss fans. Uh, This is my uh, 10th year, as you know, uh, here at 10th anniversary. And it is my 51st opera here, so I'm on my way to the 100. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I've got 49 more to go after tonight. Uh, I I always like to just tell you a little bit my own personal history with the work. Uh, This one's maybe a little cuter than others. Um, I saw it for the first time uh, about a week before my 16th birthday which means I had no business being there for an opera like this. <laughs> I was underage by anybody's standards, uh, and th- those standards were much, more, uh, were much more stringent in the 1960s when I was that age than they are today. Um, so I met some students at the dress rehearsal and they sort of laughed when I said, I have the feeling you guys know a lot more than we did when I was, they were all 16 years old. So um, I, I don't, I think, I don't think it's, I do not think it's any longer shocking, but it is sort of shocking. This opera is shocking, there's no question. There is nothing like it. You, I'm sure most of you know the story um, from the Bible. Uh, there are only uh, two references to this story, one in Matthew, one in Mark, and there are, um, there, They're not big on details, including her name. Salome got her name. Oh, the first reference uh, in, on history of her name is by, was uh, in the first century of the Christian era by the, uh, by the Hebrew historian Josephus, who mentions her by name. Uh, and he, on the other hand, doesn't talk about the dance or John the Baptist or any of that stuff. So um, she, like many other characters, it, it becomes a mythology and she grows over the passage of time. Well, I came into contact with this m- m- uh, mythology because I knew that the Metropolitan Opera was doing a new production. And I wanted to learn about it, so I went to the library in my music school and uh, took out the score, which was about that big. And I remember running into the, the assistant director of the school who knew me since I was about 11 or 12, and he was, he was Viennese, and said, uh, Where are you going with that big score? What is that? And I said, Oh, this is Salome. Is it Salome? Such a big score for such a little boy? <laughs> So there I was, but I saw one Saturday afternoon, the broadcast in March of 1966, uh, Birgit Nielsen, Karl Böhm conducting, and I will never forget it, I had shivers. Now, I didn't speak a word of German, I knew very little about life, there were no surtitles in those days, and it still knocked me over. So you don't have to know anything to be knocked over by this opera. It is one of the great, great works. Uh, so uh, then I went on to conduct it, and uh, every chance I got to go, I used to think I'll never be able to conduct this opera, I'll never be able to conduct this opera because it's so complicated. But finally, I got my chance, um, just as my little first little, well, she's now a big girl, she'll be 28 this, this week, my little da- daughter was being born and I was watching and preparing Salome. I thought to myself, I wonder how my daughter's going to turn out. I mean, this is, this is, uh, um, anyway, she's turned out beautifully. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm thrilled that she's 28 this week. Now, um, just want to call two things to your attention. If you are interested more in this subject, Uh, there is, I'm giving another talk at LACMA on Tuesday night, 7.30. Uh, It's a little bit more tilted toward art and opera, how they interact with each other. It's free. You can come 7.30 at LACMA. On Thursday night, uh, Cinematech in Santa Monica, we are collaborating and we are showing, or they are showing, um, the Rita Hayworth movie of Salome. Uh, I'm sure it's worth seeing. And I will be then uh, having a little colloquial with with Stephen Fry, who has graciously consented to come to this, a great, great, great actor and a a brilliant man who played Oscar Wilde in the movie Wilde. If you haven't seen it, go get it off Netflix or wherever you can find it. I saw it in 2000, which was exactly the 100th anniversary of the death of Oscar Wilde, and it's a movie never forgotten. And Stephen is a brilliant man, aside from being a great, uh, uh, a great actor, he's a great opera lover, and I actually collaborated with him once because he, um, in making a movie with uh, Ken Branagh, he translated it into English, and I hate translations, but I loved his translations, probably the best translation of just about anything I've had. So that's Thursday night um, at Cinematheque in, um, out in Santa Monica um so you know this is written it's a play it's written by Oscar Wilde Oscar Wilde the great Irish 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 author um one of the great authors of English literature and in the Anglo-Saxon world um, I'm I'm a particular devotee of his. He was born in 1854 in Dublin. He died at the unfortunate young age of, of 46 um, in 1900 in Paris. As you know, aside from his literary, uh, his literary genius and his accomplishments, he is also known for the tragic story of his condemnation to prison, uh, basically for being homosexual. Uh, he spent two years in hard labor, in uh, Reading Jail, of which he wrote uh, a ballad of Reading Jail afterwards, which basically ruined his, his health and he went off to Paris and died there. He, the um, importance of being earnest, of course, hilarious, uh, a masterpiece of, of uh, satire and comedy was very popular at the moment that he was being condemned to jail. Uh, along with the condemnation came a ban on all of his works in the Anglo-Saxon speaking world, world, including America, and so he was not performed and embraced in, in, in England or America for a very long time, but who got a hold of, them, of Oscar Wilde first was the continent, and the Germans were the first ones to take him on in translation and start to produce him, and that's how Indirectly, we get to this this opera. So the big the big works, Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray's novel, Salome was written in 1891. The importance of being earnest in 1895. De Profundis, his very very long letter that he wrote in in prison between um, 1895 and 1897. Uh, his big themes, there are many of them, but his big theme is that uh, he is a man of aestheticism. He believed in beauty uh, as if beauty were a religion, and he goes into that in depth. Uh, sort of art for art's sake, not quite, but um, his filigree of beautiful images uh, and musical poetry. In fact, he said he was writing music when he wrote *Salome*. Little did he know that one day this work would be internationalized through, um, its, uh, through the composition by Richard Strauss. But it's no accident. Now, he is always uh, looking into uh, the uh, contradictory character of beauty and corruption. Beauty on the surface, corrupt on the inside. And we're going to see that played out um, tonight. Now, m- many of these characters are corrupt inside and out. But the two principles, Zalome and John the Baptist, or Yohanan, as he's known in the in the in the opera, um, are all about that dichotomy. John the Baptist is, for all the for what we see, uh, ugly, ugly. I suppose because he's been li- living in a cistern for some months. Any of you have, any of you have ever been living in a cistern? You'll know that that's not so pleasant. And of course, he lived in the wilderness before that. He's the voice in the wilderness. So um, he's unkempt and a little bit horrifying to look at. But inside, his soul and his spirituality is pure. Now, you may agree or not agree with his particular brand of spirituality, but there can be no argument that he is spiritually pure. Now, uh, three Oscar Wilde works became operas. Uh, between 1905 and 1925. The first one being Zolomé, you're going to see it shortly. The other two by one of my favorite composers, and I hope some of yours, Alexander Zemlinsky. wrote uh, in 1915 a Florentine tragedy. It deals with the same dichotomy, outward appearance, inner, in that case, intelligence. Uh, in The Dwarf, that's spheric, which some of you may have seen, which was inspired by the Velázquez painting, Las Meninas, is about uh, a small, misshapen dwarf who falls in love with the Infanta, that's the daughter of the king of Spain. She plays with him like a toy and then abandons him. He is ugly, unattractive on the outside, but a poet and a spiritual uh, spiritual person of great depth on the inside. She is beautiful on the outside, superficial, spoiled um, on the inside. And we've got another princess tonight, Zalome, beautiful on the outside, uh, Yeah, by the end of the opera, she's corrupt on the inside. The the corruption is latent. Um, We're not going to see it at first. But we are going to see the imperious, spoiled uh, young princess. And and that's going to turn into one of the horror stories uh, on the stage. Uh, So that dichotomy is going to be played out, and that's a very important one. Uh, What else can I tell you about this wonderful play, which you can buy on... uh, Amazon, very inexpensive, lovely edition. And this edition also includes, you can't see it here, but um, a list of pictures by Aubrey Beardsley, who um, uh, all that you can see, he he illustrated the first English edition, even though Oscar Wilde didn't like his pictures. Uh, So uh, we're gonna get started in 1905 with this story. Now this is a few years, five years after Wilde's death, a um, a woman named Hedwig Lachmann translated it into German. She was born in Poland. She was the daughter of a rabbi. She became uh, a woman of letters, brilliant, and translated from English into German. Uh, Her grandson, amongst other grandsons, was Mike Nichols, of Mike Nichols and Elaine May fame. Isn't that crazy? Uh, So uh, she collaborated with him. The opera gets premiered in 1905. It is, in my opinion, uh, the ignition of the the 20th century. Now, one always talks about the Rite of Spring of Stravinsky, which came five or six years later, and in truth that is also true. Uh, Perhaps the Sixth Symphony of Mahler, also true, but not as played as often as those other two works. But Zalome, for me, breaks the mold and initiates, for me, the 20th century. Daring work by tonality, that's two keys being played at the same time, uh, tremendous dissonance of violence uh, in music. Um, He embraced what was to become the norm, which is now is the time that artists can write about, paint, and describe in music ugliness, ugliness and uh, ugly behavior. Whereas, uh, we have always had ugly behavior in operas. Uh, Italian operas are full of them, but it's always beautiful music. The music itself was always beautiful. Strauss breaks that rule. He feels, okay, you see something ugly or something ugly is happening, he's going to express it through a very strident, uh, uh, strident music. Uh, it's very complicated, it's very complex. There are many themes. I'm gonna show you some of those themes shortly. Uh, the orchestra now, which had been revolutionized by Wagner and had been made immense, and had been made to be the protagonist. Well, it's still the protagonist, only he's made it even bigger, and he's taken instruments that have not been used, if at all, rarely in an opera pit. The orchestra, we are uh, only 84 people, if we could fit more, we would. I mean, that's, it's big. And he hurls the music at you. You're not going to escape the orchestra. The orchestra is not there as a an accompaniment to the singers. It is there as a protagonist. And so this is, and he takes this another step, and German opera is never going to come back from that. It's, I mean, then subsequently you're going to have Uh, Schoenberg, you're going to have Berg, you're going to have Zemlinski, you're going to have Schraker. They're going to go with that dominant, uh, overwhelming presence of the the orchestra. Um, He was already a master of orchestration. Between 1886 and 1904, in those almost 20 years, he had written nine tone poems for orchestra. You'll know some of them. Uh, aus Italien, Macbeth, Don Juan, Death and Transfiguration, To Leuland Spiegel*, Don Quixote, and Ein Heldenleben. They're all great works. Every conductor wants to conduct them. I do, I do, and I love to do them. Uh, they're big, they're massive. Uh, I didn't mention also Sprach, sorry about that. Uh, so he knew the orchestra, and he, what, what these tone poems really are is that they are operas or theater without text. In other words, his dramatic flair is so strong that even when he writes quote-unquote absolute or pure music, it's not absolute or pure at all. There's a story. He was once said, I don't know if he said it about himself or somebody said that he could describe a spoon in music if he had to. Um, So he's already ready for an opera. And so um, and uh, if you, uh, how many of you saw The Abduction from the Seraglio? Good, did you like it? Yeah, yeah. If you didn't go, last chance, tomorrow afternoon. And it's not going to rain tomorrow afternoon. So, um, so um, yeah, in my article, which I invite you to read in the program or online, um, I won't make the same joke about reading it at night to put yourselves to sleep, um, but do read it, um, and I make some links with, um, with the same impulse that, um, that uh, was a dynamo be- behind the Soralio, imp- and that is exoticism. That is, Europe seeking inspiration for its, for its subjects, for its literature, for its art, for its music, in what is not European. In other words, exotic is really only means something that's foreign and unfamiliar. But the color and all that comes with that different... Culture becomes exotic. This is what exoticism was about in 1905, whereas the abduction was not exotic music. Although all that Turkish music is exotic, but the abduction of Seraglio is about um, that what is other, what is in that case Turkish, um, at the time of of uh, 1782. So there's a more than a century in between these, and uh, and that's reflected in um, all of the music. So. Uh let me tell you about the characters. you will know some of them all right so we have salome she's the main, main she is the main uh, she's the character now she is a daughter of a daughter of a princess. the princess's name is Herodias uh, she is Herodias her mother is now married to Salome's uncle Herod, okay, thereby hangs the tale now this is. He's sometimes referred to as King Herod. Actually, historically, he was a tetrarch, and you'll hear, hear him referred to as a tetrarch. The Romans used to split up cities or regions into four parts, and they had four uh, persons in charge, four governors, so to speak. Uh, therefore, it's tetrarch, which means four. And so he's a tetrarch. He's not a king, but he's referred to as a king. This is not the Herod who slaughtered the innocents. Okay, That's another Herod. This is 30 years later. The proof being that John the Baptist is now 30 years old and or more, and of course he was a baby when the first uh, Herod uh, murdered the the children. So um, Herod uh, Herod has been has has been tetrarch, and he takes a liking to Herodias, who is actually a Roman uh, aristocrat, and decides to marry her despite the fact she is married to his brother Philip. So. Um, he puts Philip in the cistern and eventually kills Philip. Um, but before he kills Philip, he doesn't bother to wait. Uh, he consummates his, his, uh, his marriage that he's you know, made up uh, with Herodias. This is what's got John the Baptist on fire because he considers her an adulteress. Now, the fact is that had Philip died first and then Herod had married Herodias, this would ha- not have been a sin. This would have been his obligation under, under Hebrew law at the time, but he didn't wait. And as our parents told us, we we're supposed to wait for marriage. <laughs> Very few of us did, but that was what that was what you were supposed to do. That was the way you were, He didn't do it that way. He was. She was an enormous sinner, and John the Baptist is on her case. And so, as he baptizes, as, as he is under uh, in the cistern, he is imprecating constantly against Herodias and somewhat against Herod. That's why he's in the cistern. He's not in the cistern because he is an advocate for this new messianic figure who will be Jesus Christ. It's not why he's in the cistern. He's in the cistern for political reasons because he's spoken against Herodias. So Zalome comes from this already somewhat dysfunctional family. Her uncle's been killed by uh, uh sorry her father's been killed by her uncle her mother has lived openly in sin if you like with that man and it's not it's not a peaceful uh relaxed atmosphere it's a corrupt court and she sees this from the time she is a young girl which is one of the reasons i believe that she is attracted to john the baptist who she's never seen he's down on the cistern because he speaks with a voice that she's never heard, a voice of purity. He speaks of the spirit. He speaks of, of something else and is convincing by his sincerity and his depth. Uh, that is exactly what the infanta in the dwarf is attracted to in this little dwarf because she's been, there's not, it's not so corrupt, the court of Philip II of Spain, but it's a very severe austere court, no warmth in that court, and suddenly she sees this adorable little man with a heart of gold, and so she's attracted to it. That's Oscar Wilde. That is echt Oscar Wilde. So, uh, Salome becomes fascinated with uh, with John, Yohanan, down there in the cistern, and insists that he be brought up so that she can meet him. This is against all the rules, but She gets her way because she is a princess. So um, you've met Herod the Tetrarch, Herodias, his second wife, Salome, the daughter of that second wife, and John the Baptist. the, The first two characters you'll meet are... We are already now in the secondary characters. There is a young Syrian officer, Narabot, who was the son of a king. We learn from Oscar Wilde. It's not mentioned in the opera. Uh, and he is a captain, and Herod is very fond of him. And the pa- uh, Herodias has a page. And this page, a young boy, uh, is devoted to uh, Narabot, the Syrian officer. This page is sung by a woman. And this is the beginning of something important Strauss loved Mozart above everybody else, he wanted to write Mozartian operas. This doesn't sound like a Mozartian opera, but two operas down the road, Rosenkavalier is going to have a lot in common with Mozart, and this trouser role, that's what we call them when a woman sings a male role, becomes a staple for a while You in know, in after, after Carabino. Now, Who's coming up? Octavian, of course, in Rosenkavalier is going to be a trouser role. The the composer in Ariadne of Noxus is is a trouser role. Um, small role, but that's the page. Now, the dynamo behind all of this, and this you can read about in my article, is desire. This is an opera that is driven by characters consumed with desire, one for the other, and every one of these persons' desire will be frustrated. Uh, at least on earth. Now, it starts out, Nara Bode is the first to sing, and he say, sings, Wie schön ist die Prinzessin Salome heute Abend. How beautiful is Salome tonight. He is mesmerized. Um, he is watching her from a distance. He's barely allowed to talk to her. He's watching her. He's in love. The page is uh, in love, or at least deeply emotionally attached to Narabot. The page, let us say, desires Narabot. Remember, this is Oscar Wilde, so there's no taboos here. He is, he is desiring Narabot. He will not have Narabot. Narabot is desiring Zalome. He will not have Salome. Herod desires Zalome, his stepdaughter. He will not have her. Um, uh, Herodias desires power. Unmitigated power, but she, it, events will show that she cannot have that either. Now we get to the most important part. Zalome desires Yochanan. She has never really desired anybody yet, uh, and so she is overwhelmed with this feeling. Uh, Now, lots of 16 year olds can be overwhelmed by having an enormous crush. I mean, I certainly did at 16 years old. Uh, However, I was not a princess, and I could not order, I could not do a dance and order that because he wouldn't uh, uh, kiss me, that I would have his head chopped off so I could do that myself. That only happens happens re- rarely in history, if at, all, if at all. This may be a unique situation, I don't know. But she does not know how to control her, her desire, and that's the important thing. She is 16, presumed to be virginal, and uh, in fact, Strauss said about her to the first, uh, the first soprano singing in 1905, who was a quote-unquote mature woman, um, very heavily built in all ways, and he said, I want a, somebody who looks like a 16-year-old virgin and can have the voice of Isolde. <laughs> she told him, you can have one or the other. Now, nowadays, nowadays, now, it, that was true for 60, 70 years. When I first saw Zalome in 1966, But Birgit Nielsen barely danced. They usually have a dancer come in and do the dance, but she, she sort of moved around a little bit. That was 1966. Now, almost every Zalome is expected to dance. Um, they are not required to go the whole way and take off all seven veils, um, but they do, and this is an early warning, they're all coming off tonight. Uh, so that if you're squeamish about that, and you shouldn't be because Patricia Reset is a beautiful woman, if you're squeamish about that, this uh, time to leave right now. Yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're not squeamish and you want to look, it's fast, so you've got to look fast. Right? Um, she's a magnificent zalome, she sang her first Salome with me in, uh, with the Chicago Symphony in Ravinia several years ago, and she has catapulted with this role, having recently sung at the Metropolitan Opera, and she is fantastic. Now, those are the main characters. There are also a very interesting uh, group of characters called the five Jews. They are a subsidiary group, but they're very, very interesting. And why are they so interesting? Um, they are going to argue. Um, they are uh, arguing uh, th- theology, as, uh, as, there's, as there are many uh, different viewpoints on many different things. And they are arguing about Johanna, this guy down in the cistern. Who, um, who is he? And I just want to read you their viewpoints, because they're all going to sing them at the same time. And so you're not going to understand a word, uh, but it's what they are saying is actually uh, historically correct. I mean, Oscar Wilde, genius on all levels and student of antiquity and the classics knew everything. First of all, you know, I did I tell you he wrote the he wrote the play in French? Uh, he was completely bilingual. He wrote the play in French. It was then translated into English. So you, we're going to get third-hand English to uh, French to English to German. Um, and Herod asks, uh, uh, it, uh, "This is a holy man," he says down there. Uh, he's a man that, who has seen God. The first objection by the first Jew. Uh, That cannot be, since the prophet Elijah, no one has seen God. He was the last one who came face to face and saw God. In our days, God shows himself not. He hides himself. That is why there is great evil on the land. Okay, one viewpoint. Second viewpoint. Second Jew. In truth, nobody knows if Elijah, in reality, has seen God. Most probably, it was only the shadow of God that he saw. Third Jew. God is at no time hidden. He shows himself at all times in all places. God is in all bad as well as in all good. Third point of view. Fourth point of view. You should not say that. It is a very dangerous doctrine coming out of Alexandria, and the Greeks are pagans. <laughs> fifth point. Fifth point. Nobody can tell how God works. His ways are very dark. We can only... Uh, bow our heads to his will, for God is very mighty. This is a fifth viewpoint, a little bit like the book of Job. Okay, you're not going to understand it because they're all going to talk at once. All right? And this is a little bit, if you like false stuff and you like the second scene of false stuff where all the women, all four women talk at, uh, at once, all of those texts make sense, but it sounds like gibberish. And that's a little bit um, the intention of Strauss. Strauss, uh, Strauss is not a religious person. He's not a he's. Nominally a Christian, but he's not. He is not big on uh, on religion, and so he's sort of lampooning a little bit the religious aspect in this opera, uh, lampooning a bit uh, these these five Jews, but also lampooning John the Baptist. In fact, um, in a in a context of a argument, he he was told, "Well, your music for John the Baptist isn't very convincing." Wow. He says, "Well, I don't have any sympathy for him anyway. I think he's an imbecile." So. <laughs> Now, however, his genius, however, was greater than his maybe his viewpoint, or maybe he was just being off the cuff, as he often often was. After all, he referred to this opera as a scherzo, a joke, with a bad ending. <laughs> so um, he's maybe putting them all, on, you know, putting putting them all up uh, just a little bit. Now. Um, there's a beautiful description um, in Alex Ross's book The Rest Is Noise if you if you're familiar with that and if you if you are not I highly recommend it um, he describes the first the first performance in Vienna uh, in in Austria this opera ordinarily would have been uh, premiered in Austria in Vienna but it was forbidden by the censor, censors so it was produced in Munich sorry Strauss, um, Strauss was born in Munich in Dresden and several productions until it's Premiere in, in Austria in Graz. And as Alex Ross describes it, May 16th, 1906, a year after, in the next year after the premiere, uh, Mahler, Schoenberg, Zemlinsky, Berg, Puccini, all present in Graz to see this event. And this event was a sensation. It was an enormous success with the, uh, with the public. It was absolutely lambasted by all the critics. Goes to show you. Um, now, now uh, in fact, Mahler was sort of a little upset with the fact because he said right away, this is a masterpiece. And he couldn't understand how a masterpiece could be received so well by the public because in his mind, all of the great pieces that were challenging the public were beyond the public's comprehension so that if everybody liked it, it couldn't be good. But this one sort of broke that, that rule. Uh, Strauss, the, uh, the emperor, said... This Emperor Wilhelm said, "You know, I'm I'm a little upset about Salome." He said, "I'm very fond of Strauss, but I really think he made a terrible mistake with this opera. He's really going to pay for it." And Strauss said, several years later, it is it said, he said, "Yes, uh, it was a big mistake. I paid for my new villa in Garmisch with the rights from Salome." So, there, there, there it is. Strauss, never a man short of a. Of, of a clever comment okay so now uh this opera being post-wagnerian is going to be is going to have a lot of motifs motives musical motives um which are direct descendants of the um of the my wire. the leitmotifs of the of the ring you'll remember them places persons events feelings objects uh, uh, it's full of them here. Now, they are, you kind of really listened because they fly back that's why if you enjoy yourself tonight, come back because you're going to hear those, the more you hear those motives and you see how they are interwoven into the orchestra in a clever manner, you'll want to hear more and more and more. Um, I just gave this little talk uh, last night to a bunch of friends, including people in the orchestra, and they were fascinated because they've been playing in this. oh my God, I didn't see that, I didn't hear that. I didn't realize that. So come back, if you like it, come back. And I always say, if you didn't like it, if you don't like it tonight, come back. Because you can't get it all the first time. And in fact, classical music gets better every time you hear it. So here's your first one. Listen carefully. It's on the clarinet. Starts just like Gershwin's rapture. Right? But he. Strauss heard it first. Okay, now, but listen to that squiggly figure. That is Zalame, exotic. From the instant the color is established, it's exotic. That's Narrabot, how beautiful is Zalame. For it again and the second time, listen underneath to the cello, they are playing Narrabots. Salome, listen to the cello. That is that is built and it ends up on the last two notes of the famous desire motive of Tristan and Isolde, which you hear right at the beginning of the prelude. It's not an accident. Strauss is telling us, this is an opera about desire. Now, here's another Salome. Listen to the clarinet. It's like a dance. This is the young, beautiful, lithe princess. One more time. all that filigree, the this music. Now, for all that Salome is very, very loud in some places, it is also transparent in, in much of the opera, and that incredibly subtle orchestration that you can see through it and hear through it uh, is evocative of, of, of the exotic Middle East for the European ear. Okay, so in contrast now we have John the Baptist, Johannan, here he is. His first theme is a very, uh, is very tonal, very, we call it diatonic for those who have studied music. It is not chromatic, it is not like uh, Wagner. It is, um, it's stately, it's severe, it's noble. Here he is. On the horns, usually. And you hear the immediate difference between the music of the opening and his language, which is completely different. Now, listen to this small interlude where Johannaan is brought up from the bottom of the cistern, and you're going to hear how Strauss threads together, Salome's the second theme: ba da da dum, ba dum ba and uh, the first of the uh, the first of the Johanna themes. Here we go. Salome. Salome again. Dun-dum, 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 dun-dum. Here's Yohanan, you can And here is the sister, new new motive. Now how low it is, That's the sister. And here is the second. This is John the Baptist, the uh, the mystic, the seer into the transcendent truths. You hear how it rises. This is deeply inspired. I don't care if Strauss said he was an imbecile. I don't believe him, and I don't believe he believed that. First, John the Baptist again. Cistern coming up. Cistern. And now a new theme. Salome in love. Okay. Later, you're going to get another theme of Zalamea. Oh, sorry, I forgot about this part. Yeah, this is this one. Pom, pom, pom. That is the prophecy. That's him as a prophet. Um, Talking about the end of time. You're going to hear that constantly. When he comes, meaning when the Messiah comes. Later that's going to become very important. This trill late in the opera and at the end of the dance that's a Zalame theme and is very anxious okay here's another one here's Johannan. this is his third theme and the most important this is the mystic theme you hear the, how mysterious it is the first time you hear it and when he explains to Salome that the Messiah will forgive his sins, we get this. You get it in all of its power here. biggest confrontation is the scene between Zalome and Yohanan. Uh, uh, she desires him and it's structured beautifully. He comes out ranting against Herod and Herodias, as he will. She likes that. A lot of girls that age like it when they hear bad things about their parents. And also remember that um, her, her father lived in that cistern when she was young. And so that there's a Freudian uh, implication here that the part of the attraction of John, Johannan, is that he is like a father figure to her as well, because he comes. He, uh, he starts. Where is he? And she's going to. Uh, he's going to. He's going to predict uh, the end of Herod. She's going to react to it. Who's he talking about? Here he goes again. Where is she? In Herodias, and then he imprecates against her. And Zalome again reacts and says, oh, he is horrible. Er ist schrecklich, but she's attracted to him. Okay. She then starts, and this is in three parts. I love your body. She says it, okay? I'm in love with your body. In love with your body, your body is white as the lilies in the field by the scythe untouched. Now we get into typical classic Oscar Wilde descriptions, very ornate, very evocative, long cascades of descriptive, of descriptive nouns and verbs. Your body is as white as the snow on the hills of Judea, the roses in the garden of Arab, Arab, Arabia's queen and not as white as your body. Not the roses in the garden of the queen, nor of the feet of the dawn upon the leaves, nor the breasts of the moon upon the sea. Nothing in the world is as white as your body. Let me touch it, your body. Basically, get back, daughter of Babylon. Through a woman, you're not gonna like this, and I don't agree with it. Through a woman came evil into this world. That is John the Baptist's viewpoint. Okay, so she, so she doesn't like that, and so she says, your body, your body is horrible. It's like the body of a leper. Now, another description. It is like a whitewashed wall where vipers have crawled, where scorpions in their nests have built. It is like an overwhelmed, whitewashed grave full of repulsive things. It is ghastly, your body. With your hair, am I in love, Johanna. And then, your hair is like wine grapes, like bushels of black grapes. On the vines of Edom, your hair is like the cedars, the big cedars of Lebanon, which the lions and robbers give shade. The long black nights when the moon hides itself, when the stars are fearful, are not as black as your hair. The woods, stillness, nothing in the world is as black as your hair. Let me touch it, your hair. Do not touch me. Profane not the temple of the Lord, my God. Her response? Your hair is loathsome. It is covered with dust and filth. It is like a crown of thorns upon your head placed. It is like a knot of serpents wrapped around the neck. I love your hair knot. Your mouth I desire, Yohanan. Your mouth is like a scarlet band on a tower of ivory. It is like a pomegranate. And on and on and on she goes about his mouth. She says, lass mich deinen Mund küssen. Let me kiss your mouth. And she's not going to turn that around ever. She sticks with that and that's going to be her obsession until the end of the opera. And she is going to stick to that and she is going to do that. And that is her, That and that's what Strauss once said, you know, couldn't, couldn't Johanan have given her a little kiss? But then the opera wouldn't be the opera. You wouldn't be here tonight. Uh, it wouldn't be the famous head on a plate. Uh, there wouldn't be the fa- famous dance of se- seven veils. There wouldn't be all of that, and history wouldn't be the same. So uh, I hope that you have the same kind of incredible thrill that I'd had Uh, half a century ago when I was an underage child and loved this opera, I love it to this day. Uh, Welcome to it and enjoy every minute of it. There's no intermission, it's short, you'll be out, out early tonight, but no intermission, so make sure you pass it. Thank you so much.